Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Stocks for beginners. Phil Muscatello and FinPods are authorized reps of Money Sherpa. The information in this podcast is general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal situation. The price of the vote is directly correlated, if not caused, by the amount of opportunity for outside parties, generally, to unlock value. So if the vote prices are relatively high, you can look at them as a percent of the share price. If it's anything exceeding 0.5%, that would be considered quite high. In general, votes are worth nothing because there has never been a market for voting rights, a fully functioning, efficient market until SV. So as the vote prices rise, that indicates there's some opportunity at hand, whether it's a governance change on the board or it's an M&A opportunity that might be more direct. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. What's a proxy and what are your rights as a shareholder? How can you earn extra income from your voting rights? Joining me in this episode to explain everything proxy is Preston Yediga. Hi, Preston. Hello, Phil. Preston is the founder and CEO of Shareholder Vote Exchange, the world's first marketplace for shareholder voting rights. Preston has previously worked at several investment advisors and hedge funds in trading and software engineering roles. He graduated from Boston University with a bachelor's degree in computer science and philosophy in 2020. So how was the philosophy side of things? I believe that the joke is they only teach you enough philosophy at college to screw you up for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad I studied something technical to go along with it. On its own, it's not necessarily the strongest degree. Yep. So let's dive deeply into proxies. What is a proxy? Well, a proxy is a sort of legal authorization, which enables one shareholder to appoint someone else to vote on their behalf at a company's annual meeting. So companies have annual meetings and extraordinary meetings to vote on you know, electing the board of directors, approving mergers and acquisitions, other items. And so when shareholders are unable to attend the meetings in person or on the meeting date virtually, they can appoint a proxy to vote on their behalf. And the proxy can either execute the shareholders' instructions, the specific votes, or they can exercise their own discretion on how they would like to vote. So when you own shares in a company, you end up with the rights to be able to vote in this situation. So you personally could go along to the AGM and vote on your own behalf, can't you? Yeah. So a lot of shareholders are you know, tech legally able to, but most of them are unable to actually attend physically in person. They're either too busy. You know, In the US, around 80% of retail investors don't exercise their votes whatsoever. That's because they're, you know, they don't have time or they're not interested in voting or they're even unaware. You know, someone just getting started might, you know, get their proxy votes in the mail or or by email and just disregard them. You know, if you only own a share or two or a hundred or a thousand of some company, it might not be worth your time or even the company's to some extent for you to vote. They call it rational shareholder apathy is the term. 
Oh, I like that term, rational shareholder apathy. We might put that in the glossary. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think investors should take these more seriously then, their voting rights and passing them on to someone else? Well, I would argue that the rational apathy is actually a valid theory. Some academics actually contest this. They think, no, it's not rational. Everyone should participate. That's what makes for good corporate governance. But I would argue that as a retail investor, at least, it's really not worth your time, especially if you own a very nominal number of shares. So what you're better off doing is actually selling off that vote or providing it to another shareholder or even to the management, someone else who has a more vested interest, who's done more research, who's more engaged and has more strong views about how the votes should be exercised. And in exchange, they could pay you, they may unlock value at the company, they may keep the company more stable. There's a, a number of ways in which you can benefit directly or indirectly by doing this. So investors should be paying attention to it because these votes have value, and most of them tend to be thrown away these days. And this is voting at the board level, isn't it? This is directing the board on how they should be running the company. Is that the case? Yes. Most votes in these AGMs are for selecting the board of directors, but you also do have votes on other issues. You know, In the US, there's a term ESG. You may vote on whether or not the company should engage in a, a labor audit or some sort of environmental proposal to reduce emissions. There are also votes to approve mergers and acquisitions. There are certain thresholds that need to be met, and those votes tend to be more difficult to approve. The threshold is is a bit higher. It's not simply a 50% majority in many cases. So these votes, in the case of a merger acquisition, the voting outcome can directly impact your returns. Often a merger will come at a premium, let's say a 20% premium, which is pretty standard. And if a merger is not approved, the shareholders stand to lose out on that premium that gets paid. So there are many cases in which these votes have, have very tangible and direct value. You're very young. How did you get interested in this side of things and put together this company? I mean, it's only been three years or so since you've left college. Yeah. So not long after leaving university, I had started a, a fund with some initial seed capital from family and friends. And in running that fund, I had engaged in a strategy called pairs trading, where you go long one asset and you go short another, and both the assets are related. And the concept is that you know, for instance, you might buy an undervalued asset, let's say Pepsi, and you might short Coca-Cola, which might be overvalued. And over time, that gap between the two assets may converge. That's a typical Paris trading strategy. So I'd been doing this for one company, in fact, not across two. I did across the common stock and the preferred stock. And I was left over with these voting rights. And I thought, these must have some value. I can't really get them by using them. It's not very direct. So I looked into how I can sell them and whether that's possible. And I found that it is possible, but there's no platform or marketplace for doing it. So I hired a securities attorney. I myself was a licensed financial advisor at the time. And we looked into the regulation. And after thorough research, I decided that this was an idea worth exploring myself and building. So for the past couple of years now, I've built the sort of MVP, the minimum viable product, and now recruited some co-founders, employees, 
and users onto the platform. So we have hundreds of retail investors on the platform and investment advisors, other folks in these spaces who are actively using the platform. So it's, it's been quite a journey. And just last week, as I was mentioning before we started, we were featured on Bloomberg, which was a nice way to get some exposure and publicity. Oh, hopefully we'll give you some exposure and publicity on this podcast as well. Maybe, maybe not Bloomberg <laughs> level. <laughs> no, no, certainly, certainly. On this podcast, we often talk about investments being more than just ticker codes. I mean, a lot of people just think of the company code and the price, and they don't even look at anything else. But they're really living, breathing companies, and being able to vote and being able to exercise proxies is a way of understanding them as living, breathing companies. And what are some of the ways that investors can help to drive change in the companies they invest in via their vote? Well, the most direct way, as you mentioned, is proxy voting or simply voting directly. But in many cases, as I mentioned, shareholders don't own enough to make a real difference. Nonetheless, they can still have an impact. There are other platforms and associations out there for driving change where you can collect interests and partner with other shareholders to advocate for certain steps that the company should take. And that can really have an impact. So even if you or a group of shareholders don't get approval for a certain proposal, let's say a proposal to reduce carbon emissions, even if that proposal doesn't pass, if you can get the threshold high enough, you raise awareness among other shareholders. And over time, you might gather more support. Or simply, the management may see, you know, if you get 40% approval and you need 50% technically for it to, to pass, that might be close enough for the management to just say, let's take this, you know, head on proactively instead of being forced to by the shareholders. So there's many ways that investors can drive uh, value. That's in the case of, you know, environmental proposal. There are obviously other areas relating to labor or employees, unions as well as shareholder distributions, the company's dividend policy, who's overseeing the company on the board of directors, who's running the company and the management team, being more vocal, either in these annual meetings or outside of them, on social media or in investing forums. There's many ways that shareholders can leverage their voice to have an impact. It's interesting that you mentioned the ESG side of things because there's many investors who say, oh, I don't want to know about that stuff. You know, I don't care about climate change. I just want the company to make money. But it's becoming more and more important, even if you don't really support the idea of ESG, that companies actually are actively seeking to implement policies about ESG because they're not going to be able to get capital. They're not going to be able to get funding from banks and so forth because of the regulations that are coming about in this area. That's the case, isn't it? Yeah, I think of ESG as a sort of tug of war between the shareholders and the companies themselves. A lot of the issues in the proxy voting and the, the realm of corporate governance are a tug of war between shareholders and managers or boards. And so in the case of ESG, you see a lot of shareholders or financial institutions advocating for ESG type products or proposals or principles. And then on the other side, you have the managers of the companies or the boards generally opposing that. In some cases, they take it on proactively, like I mentioned earlier. But by and large, they tend to advocate against. You can look at any company's proxy statement that gets filed annually before their AGM and look at what the board's recommendations are for shareholder proposals. They tend to be against shareholder proposals in general. So 
that's one way of evaluating. But ESG will certainly stick around. And it's a trend that you know you can look over time has has just grown so rapidly and consistently. It's faced some questions over the past year or two, but I think it's here to stay. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Are you looking for unbiased, in-depth market insights? Deep Knowledge Investing is dedicated to providing conflict-free, well-researched stock ideas. Gary Broad is a 30-year Wall Street hedge fund veteran turned to the good side. He's dedicated to providing you with independent and timely market commentary. Deep Knowledge Investing is supported by a large, successful and highly engaged board of advisors who provide expert advice and insights in a variety of fields and industries. Gary appears regularly on this podcast so you can check out his insights for yourself and see if he's the right guy for you. Receive 50% off a Deep Knowledge Investing subscription by using the promo code STOCKSFORBEGINNERS50, that's 5-0. By using this promo code, you can subscribe for six months for only $100 or check it out for a month for only $25. That's deepknowledgeinvesting.com and use the promo code STOCKSFORBEGINNERS50. By using this code, you'll be helping to support this podcast. Deep Knowledge Investing, helping you to beat the market. Okay, well, these next set of questions I've picked up from your FAQ page on the SVE website. And this is really things about how corporate governance and proxies and voting takes place. Let's start off with a dual class share structure. What is that? So a dual class share structure, or you might hear multi-class share structure, is one way that companies can set up their equity. Most companies simply have one class of common equity or shares. But in some cases, often in the case of technology or consumer companies, you might see more than one class. And what will happen is one class will get different treatment or rights or privileges than the others. In the US, the typical arrangement is for one class, let's call it class A, to be publicly traded, and that class will get one vote per share. And then you might have another class, a class B, which is held private let's say by the employees or the founders or the management of the company, maybe even the directors. And those shares get 10 votes each. So you can get these sort of disparities between the two classes, generally around control and voting power, but sometimes around other economic rights. Some of them can get liquidation preference. Some of them you know, may be able to vote on certain policies while others are excluded. There's a lot of different arrangements that can be put in place, and they're really most common in the US among technology companies now, but they've gone as far back as a company like Ford. They have dual class shares, and the sort of super voting shares are held by the Ford family and its foundation. So they've been around for nearly 100 years. At one point, that caused Ford stock to be delisted from the exchanges because the exchanges didn't want to tolerate this, but they've come back into popular use. And now they're sort of retrenching a little. 
to kind of middle ground. But they're very interesting and controversial structure to put in place. And a dual class share structures are often used to stop the company becoming a takeover target, which can have an effect on the share price, that the price is not as high as it could be if it was open to being taken over. Yeah, certainly. So dual class share structures are one method. There are other methods as well. Poison pills, also known as shareholder rights plans. Staggered boards can also be another way to take over attempts, where essentially, instead of electing all the directors for a one-year term, you elect them to two or three-year terms, and then you put them in tranches. You know, Half of them will get elected in 2024, and the other half in 2025 for two-year periods, or over three-year periods, you would stagger them differently. There are different methods out there. And there are other rights that shareholders have, the right to act by written consent and other informational rights that you have that sometimes companies can try and limit. The hot one right now are called advanced notice bylaws, where shareholders, if they want to take certain actions, they have to disclose who they are. And often these are large financial institutions or hedge funds or you know investment advisors. And in one case, the bylaws were requiring the shareholder to disclose all of their LPs and their address at which they live and their names. So there's a huge kind of privacy concern as well. And that ended up being too restrictive. The courts kind of ruled against that. So certainly a lot of these can depress company valuations if outside parties are unable to step in and utilize control to unlock value. I guess that's a good point to start talking about activist investing. What is activist investing? So activist investing is really another form of value investing. And value investing, you know, investor will assess the intrinsic value of a company. And if a company is trading in the market for less than its intrinsic value, they'll go out and buy shares of the company. And hopefully over time, the market value approaches the intrinsic value, and that enables the investor to outperform the market, or at least to generate positive returns. Activist investing kind of takes that step further, where the shareholder will step in and utilize their rights, namely control, to unlock or uh, value or bridge that gap, to close the valuation gap through manual effort. And so there's a variety of ways they can do that. There's generally a few categories relating to uh, finance, governance, strategy, or operations where the activist can unlock value. In the case of governance, they might replace the board of directors or the management, you know, the CEO. Operations, they might try and change you know, how the company is organized or what it's spending its money on. Or they might have to lay off some employees to make it more profitable in some cases. Or they might spend more on advertising to drive sales. In the case of finance, they may restructure the company's balance sheet or they may reduce inventory to free up cash. And with strategy, they may spin off a subsidiary, they might consider a merger acquisition. All of these tools are in there to improve or enhance the stock price. And it's generally most effective when the company's shares have declined or stagnated in recent years, especially relative to their peers. So if the company is operating very well, you know, let's take Apple, for instance, they've done so well over such a long period of time now there's really not much room for an activist to step in. Now, also, Apple is such a big company that no one really could step in in a meaningful way, you know, let's say owning 10 or 20% of the company. Maybe Warren Buffett, if he really went all in. 
That's what activist investing is all about, unlocking value. Do you have any examples of any activist investing that you've personally witnessed? So actually, one of my first investments was in Chipotle. And this was around the time that they had this, I forget the exact disease now, but they had a food illness outbreak that had, they had to shut down stores, they had to check their whole supply chain and make sure to eradicate this virus. It was a big scare for consumers. And the company stock took a big hit. And so I had bought some shares. As a teenager, I thought the company's food was, was good. You know, I went there regularly. And it turns out that over the next year or so, fairly notable activist investor Bill Ackman stepped in and came, sort of replaced the company's CEO at the time, brought in a very experienced executive. He used to run, I believe, a Taco Bell. The man's name is Brian Nickel. Taco Bell was a subsidiary of Yum Brands. So very experienced food industry executive. And they really turned the ship around. And the company stock, I don't have the exact figures, but it's gone up at least a couple hundred percent within the few years that followed. So that was a very interesting case to witness. And it so happened to be my, my first investment. Although I was not an activist by any means, I wasn't even familiar with it. But I sort of tagged along for the ride. And, and did you hold all through that ride? But yeah, I'm still a shareholder of Chipotle. Not as much as I would have liked to be, but it's still a, a good portion of my portfolio. So then what's a proxy fight? I guess sometimes these activist investors have to duke it out to try and get the proxies and fight it out for what they're after. Yeah, exactly. So in the case of Chipotle, there was no proxy fight because the company was fairly receptive to change and they understood that they needed to turn things around and bring in someone who could get things under control and maybe have more of a vision for the company. But a proxy fight occurs when there isn't common ground amongst the shareholder base and the management or boards of directors. So you have these two sides that are generally fighting. Sometimes you'll have more than two, but generally it's two. And when they cannot agree on the company's future, what will happen is, is a proxy fight where the dissenting shareholder will nominate several candidates to the company's board of directors, and the company's board will nominate its current directors usually. They may change up a couple of them if they're very proactive, and it'll be put up to a vote by all the other shareholders. So this is known as a proxy fight or proxy contest. What happens is both sides start spending ridiculous amounts of money and time and other resources to curry favor among the other shareholders. So they'll talk to the big institutional investors at the company. They'll try and do marketing or PR campaigns, sometimes smear campaigns against the other side. But generally, it stays civil. Sometimes they even do private investigations, though, so it can get quite contentious. All in a bid to get the other side to sort of cave in and kind of come to a settlement. So if they never go to a settlement, that simply gets put up to a vote. And the winner is you know, then put on the board or stays on the board. And then they have their term to enact the changes that they want. You know, even if a, an activist loses a proxy fight in a given year, if they come close enough, they may even be put on the board or the company may implement the changes that the activist was advocating for. In the case of one of the largest proxy fights ever, if not the largest between Tryon Partners and Procter & Gamble, this was in 2017. It appeared that Tryon had, had actually won the proxy fight 
within a week or two of the AGM. But, you know, after a sort of recount or two, turns out that they lost by a very narrow margin. But the margin was so small, it was like 0.01% or something, that the company said, you know what, we'll actually bring you on the board because they don't want to go through this again next year. They had spent hundreds of millions on this. So that's what a proxy fight is. And the way SVE intends to insert ourselves is actually redirecting a lot of the capital that gets spent on this proxy fight back to the shareholders directly. So you might imagine that you own shares of Procter & Gamble and there's this proxy fight, and you might not care about voting. You can tender your votes to the sort of the highest bidder, whether that's the management or the activist, and say, you know, put your money where your mouth is. If you really think you're going to unlock value, go ahead and pay for it. And you can earn this as passive income on SV. So that's sort of how we step into the picture. So is that why the price of your vote can help you to identify investment opportunities? Yes, precisely. So the price of the vote is directly correlated, if not caused, by the amount of opportunity for outside parties, generally, to unlock value. So if the vote prices are relatively high, you can look at them as a percent of the share price. If it's anything exceeding 0.5%, that would be considered quite high. In general, votes are worth nothing because there has never been a market for voting rights, a fully functioning, efficient market until SV. So as the vote prices rise, that indicates there's some opportunity at hand, whether it's a governance change on the board or it's an M&A opportunity that might be more direct. So those are two examples. But when the vote prices are low, one should not interpret that as there are the companies necessarily perfect and there's no reason for activists to be involved or other parties. When the vote prices are low, think of it like a distribution where you've got the two ends are low and you've got a bell curve in the middle where the vote prices are high that indicates opportunity. On the two ends, for one side, vote prices might be low because the company has performed very well. Take the case of Apple, for instance. There isn't really room or opportunity for anyone to unlock value. That's one case. But then you have the other side where the company might have a dual class share structure. And so it's simply impossible for anyone to get enough votes. And so why would you ever buy any votes to begin with? So there's kind of two ends of the spectrum there. So how is the price of your vote set? Well, it's set in the marketplace. So we operate as the exchange connecting buyers and sellers. Are you setting the price or is someone else setting the price? How does that work? It's entirely set by the buyers and the sellers if they're interested in selling at the given market rate. So we take no part in setting the price. We don't engage in the transactions ourselves. Shareholder Vote Exchange simply connects the buyers and sellers through one platform. And so buyers, you know, the demand side is generally a function of, you know, what's at stake in the meeting. Is this simply an AGM where there's no, you know, it's a pretty routine electing the board of directors and appointing the auditor and there's nothing else really going on? In that case, the votes might not be worth too much, maybe a nominal amount, you know, pennies on the dollar. And in the case where there is a sort of contested situation, the votes might be worth a lot. You know, as I mentioned earlier, it could go up to, let's say, 5%. There's academic research that even suggests some votes are worth, on average, around 11% or 10%. So it can really vary quite a lot. And as we build the markets, we'll see what the exact demand shapes up to be. 
and the supply. But given that most investors don't use their votes, we think there's a lot of value to be created for them through the marketplace. How can you ensure that whoever's buying your proxies are going to be voting in your interest? Yeah, so the main way we do it is by opening up access to the platform. We allow all shareholders to purchase votes, but at the same time, we prevent non-shareholders from getting involved. As a shareholder, you know, if I'm selling to another shareholder, you know, you would generally expect that your interests are aligned. There can be many cases in which they aren't, but fundamentally, you're both investors in the company. So we allow shareholders to purchase votes. And then we also allow managements to purchase votes or the board of directors can step in and acquire votes. They're sort of a natural buyer because if the company is running into certain problems, let's say in their AGM, they can't achieve what's called quorum where they need sort of a minimum level of participation in order for the meeting to be legitimate. If they can't meet that level, then they'll need to reschedule the meeting. It's going to cost them time and money and distract them from the actual operations. So you might see that there's an opportunity for them to actually purchase these proxies and exercise them so that they can achieve quorum and move on with things. And that's a win-win for both the selling shareholders and the, the company operators themselves. So both restricting and opening up access are two levers. So we would never allow a short seller onto SVE. Kind of an interesting case is whether unions or employee organizations should be allowed to purchase votes. It's not an area that we are deciding. We are referring all of these to the courts. So courts have ruled on this before, and we are sort of deferring to what's legal in any given jurisdiction. So for now, we're only open to companies in the United States. Investors from anywhere in the world who own US companies can participate on SVE. Over time, we will expand to other jurisdictions, the UK, Canada, Australia, Japan, European countries, Asian countries, over time. But we want to ensure regulatory compliance. So ensuring that shareholders' values are protected is a matter of determining who can participate in the marketplace and also what they can vote upon. These votes are not sort of, you know, some people have this notion that you can buy votes and then kind of take down the company. You know, at the first step, we would ban the short seller from participating. And second, we might have some disclosure obligations to go along with that. And then third, there simply isn't a way to sort of take down the company with the votes. You're voting on certain items or voting proposals. Those are approved by the regulator in the US. It's generally the SEC. State law also comes into play. And generally, there's no sort of proposal to quote unquote, take down or abolish the company. You know, there's many different ways you can try and do that. But, you know, for instance, electing someone to the board and they try and do something nefarious, but that would simply be legal. They'd be violating their fiduciary obligation. So there's really no clear way that that could happen. And we take a lot of steps to ensure that no one even wants that to happen in the marketplace as shareholders. And presumably, you don't have to just give someone a blank proxy. I mean, you can direct your vote the way that you want and give your proxy to someone else as well. Yeah. So there are lots of platforms online for doing that. You can do that on SVE. We even envision adding ways for you to sort of split up the one proxy, the one vote into several. So you might separate the votes for the election of directors to each person, separate votes, and then a vote for the shareholder proposals all on their own. And you might imagine that might be even more efficient because someone might be interested in getting the 
votes for the directors, but not on the shareholder proposals. And then you you might be able to facilitate more efficient market by splitting that up. So there are a lot of interesting ways that can kind of be enhanced. But for now, we're starting simple with just kind of one vote that represents the proxy. So how can listeners sell their voting rights? Tell us about SVE. And I just want to say here right at at the outset, that's a great looking website and there's a lot of really good educational material on there as well. So I'd highly recommend listeners go there. So yeah, tell us about what investors need to do to start thinking about selling their voting rights. Well, I appreciate it, Phil. You have to thank my co-founder, Rose, who really worked very hard on both uh, the front end and the user experience to make it look appealing and, and functional. So the way that investors can participate, whether they want to sell or buy votes, is to sign up directly. It's nothing too crazy. Just take first name, last name, email address to make an account. And whenever you receive your proxy, if you want to sell, you simply upload your voting information or provide us with access to your account. That can be your email account. Eventually, we're going to add support for brokerage accounts. We're currently working on some integrations for investors to directly connect and have their votes on the platform. And regardless of how you verify your voting rights, you know whether you own 100 shares of Apple or Computer Share, I know is an Australian company, they're quite big. Once you verify your votes, you simply can list them in the marketplace. And once they get sold around the meeting date, then you can withdraw your proceeds. So it's kind of a three-step process. We offer both an automated way of doing things through those email or brokerage account connections. Or you can do it manually if you want control and you want to kind of pick and choose which votes you sell, which ones you don't sell. There's a lot of flexibility. We have different options for folks. And the typical experience as an individual investor, because as I said, that's who I was sort of uh, starting out and a financial advisor, is for you to upload your information, sell your votes, and then eventually at some point in time, withdraw your proceeds. Usually it takes one to three months for the meeting date to occur. So you never really put money into the platform. You only take money out, depending on how much your votes are worth. So we think it's very appealing from that perspective as an individual. And we've gotten a lot of signups and kind of viral growth from that. I know you're not a tax advisor, but how are these proceeds taxed? So it it depends on the jurisdiction. I, I know you probably hate hearing it depends, but it depends on the jurisdiction. In the United States, we are recommending that investors treat them as short term capital gains because we view the proxies as an independent or standalone financial asset. You know, the way we conceive of things is that you're issued this proxy at a cost basis of zero, and then you're selling it for some X amount of dollars, that X is your profit. Some folks have argued that the proxies should be viewed as actually a long-term capital gain tax, where you own the stock for enough time, and you actually have the voting rights, and the proxies are just representing those voting rights. And so, you know, if you've held the stock for longer than a year, then perhaps those voting rights are are long-term voting rights. And when you sell the proxy, your cost basis should be considering the price at which you acquired the stock. I think that's a bit harder of an argument to make from a tax perspective. We will have to see sort of how that plays out. But to be conservative, treating it as short-term capital gains is the way to go. And that's what we recommend. So what's the website and your social handles? Where can people find you and get more information? Yeah, our website is svegroup.com, stands for Shareholder Vote Exchange Group. And we're active on Twitter, Instagram, even one of my co-founders is going viral on TikTok with some of his promotions on Twitter, or X, apologies. We're at SVE Markets 
We do have other accounts elsewhere, Facebook and Stock Twits and even Seeking Alpha, but we're not as active there. Twitter or X is sort of our main platform. And then also on Medium, I post some blogs or Substack. You can find it easy enough by just searching for my name, Preston Yadigar, or for Shareholder Vote Exchange. They should pop up. So I came across you on Side Hustle Nation, which is a great podcast. Are you a listener to that podcast? Yeah, Nick's done a great job over there. And I actually got the chance to meet him in person a few months ago at FinCon in New Orleans. So it was really great meeting him. And I've been listening to his podcast for a bit. Always some interesting ideas on there. And yeah, it's really a unique kind of community he's curated around it. Mm. So what did you think about SVE? What was it about SVE that you thought listeners would like to hear about? So I had been kind of chatting with Nick a couple weeks before this conference in New Orleans. And once I met him there, we basically said, well, you know, SV kind of fits right into this whole appeal of, you know, side hustles and you know, passive income or alternative sources of income. And so the audience really liked it. We see constant traffic coming from both our podcast appearance and other places we appear on the site and elsewhere. So, you know, I'm super thrilled to have given that exposure over there. And, you know, some of our best users, some of our earliest users, in fact, came from over there. So it's been really great. And, you know, at the end of the day, like I mentioned, it's sort of a lot of investors are throwing away their proxies. So our value proposition really fits into kind of finding a value, sort of turning, going from trash to treasure, sort of. Yeah, finding value when you didn't expect to find an extra source of income. That's always a good thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the goal. Preston Yadiga, thanks very much for joining me today. Awesome. Thank you very much, Phil. Thanks for listening to Stocks for Beginners. If you enjoy listening, please take a moment to rate or review in your podcast player or tell a friend who might want to learn more about investing for their future. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.